Uh, we've been working our way through 1 Peter and we're going to continue this morning in chapter 4. We'll begin reading from verse 1. We'll go to verse 6 just to say we had a, a really good day. A few of us went on to the West of Scotland Gospel Partnership. That was a really great day and next year I hope when they have their, their day's conference that more of us will be able to go because it was very, very worthwhile. There's a number of people there from Bellis Hill Baptist Church and I'm going there to preach tonight just to help them out a little bit in their vacancy just so I was there last month as well just in case you're wondering where I'm disappearing to just to try and give a bit of support to them at this time. But we'll read um, from verse 1 and here Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, orgies carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But, the, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word and we want to pray that you'll give us just minds and hearts that are ready to grasp and ready to apply and to live out the truth of what you bring to us now. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are not many things in life that you can say with total confidence are common to the vast majority of people. But one thing, though, that I think you can safely say is that most of us try to avoid, in any way that we can, the unpleasant, unpalatable aspects of life. It doesn't matter whether these things are actually unavoidable, necessary, or or what. Still, there are certain things that we will do all in our power to avoid facing up to. A little bit like the, the boy who came home from school to announce Dad, I have a message for you. There's going to be a small meeting of the Parent-Teacher Association at school tomorrow. What do you mean by a small meeting? asked his father. Well, said the boy, it's just you, me, and the headmaster. (laughs) I had a few of those. I wish I'd known how to... It's a good way to put it. Anyway, but one of the the unpleasant, unpalatable things that, that most people try to avoid is being told that they are a sinner and the the common reaction is no not me I'm I'm a good person I'm a nice person I'm not a sinner yet you know the fact that we are sinners is an unavoidable and central truth of the bible for as that famous verse Romans 3 23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you see, if we say 
that we're not sinners, then it's God we make out to be a liar because he tells us in his word that we are. For, for many people, though, I think the, the problem here lies in their definition of just what a sinner actually is. That is popularly it's thought that to be a sinner, that you must be somebody who's guilty of, of some terrible crime or of a whole series of, of terrible crimes. But you see, that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say that we have to do terrible things to be a sinner. Because what does Romans 3.23 again say? It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we are sinners because we fall short of God's glory. Because we fall short then of the goodness, of the purity, the perfection of God. That originally we were created with the potential to share. With all of this stemming from that, that first sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Recorded in one of the most Bible's famous chapters, Genesis 3. That sin where he chose to do the one thing that God had commanded him not to do. Do you see now, do you see what this is, is actually telling us? That being a sinner isn't ultimately about the things that we do at all. No, these things, our sins, are really just the symptom, the outworking of our sin. But the root of sin lies in that we choose to do what God tells us not to do that we rebel against God, that we go our way rather than his way. That was the root of Adam's sin, the first sin. And since Adam first introduced sin into human experience, we have then been by nature and then by choice sinners, all of us. Now the passage that we're looking at here in 1 Peter looks at sin, at what sin means and what our relationship to sin should be in three very different areas of life. And that's what we're going to look at together just now. So first then, let's look at the relationship we see here between sin and suffering. Verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. Now, when you really examine this verse, actually look at it and think it through as, as I've done, it soon becomes apparent that this is actually a very difficult verse to really understand. So let's just try and take it apart bit by bit and, and see just where that gets us. So, okay, therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Now, it seems to me that what this basically means is that God calls us to seek to think about, to seek to have the same depth of insight as Christ had. To think in the same way, to have the same attitude then as Jesus had, to suffering, to sin, and to obedience. And then this verse goes on. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done. With sin. And that phrase is done with sin. What a phrase that is. Well, let's just make clear, first of all, what this cannot mean. And that is that it cannot mean 
that someone who suffers physically, no matter how terrible their suffering is, will as a result of that no longer sin, cease to sin. It cannot mean that. I mean, experience tells us that there are many people who have suffered greatly and yet who still sin very much. And also, the Bible tells us that that no one, while still in this mortal body, will ever reach the point of sinlessness. No matter how much or how little we suffer, we'll never be sinless. As 1 John 1 verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Nor, I think, can we even understand this in the sense that in any kind of simplistic way, physical suffering somehow automatically strengthens our faith and and causes us to grow spiritually. Because while that is certainly true of some, and there are some remarkable examples of this, say like Johnny Erickson, tragically paralysed in an accident in her youth, and yet someone who's come through this to be a woman of just enormous spiritual maturity, someone who God has used, particularly through our writing ministry, to bring blessing to countless people. But we know, don't we? We know that this is by no means true of everyone. That there are many, many others who far from finding faith, growing in faith, being strengthened in faith by their suffering, who to the contrary turn from faith to one extent or another, who become embittered and rebellious, resentful toward God because of it. So no, what I believe this actually means here when it says, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin, is that this is about someone who because of their experience of sin and their reaction to it, who is shown by this that their life is grounded on real spiritual truth, on biblical principles. You see, this is about someone whose experience of suffering has underlined in them the truth that living for God's glory matters more than self. That obeying God, being faithful to God, matters more than living in this world for sinful pleasure. That the world to come with all its rewards matters more than the here and now pleasures of this world in which we're now set. Do you get that? That suffering can clarify for the Christian what really matters in life if their heart's there and they're seeking God. But in addition to this, parallel to this, suffering also, as part of this, tests out the reality of where we really are spiritually. That is... Is our spirituality, our Christianity, is it something superficial, something immature? Maybe a matter of words and head belief, but not much more than that. So yes, do we show by our reaction to our suffering that in reality the pleasures of sin actually matter more to us than the glory of God? Or alternatively, is our spirituality shown in this to be something that runs deep, deep down to the very core of who we are. So then, putting it together, suffering tests us spiritually, and if our hearts are right 
teaches us more and more of what really matters in life. Now, some of you may remember uh, a quote that I shared with you recently from a book that was written by Corrie ten Boom, a book where basically she was sharing her thoughts on her return to Holland after years spent in a German concentration camp where she'd lost her beloved father and sister. But this, though, just to remind you, is part of what she said at that point about the suffering she'd gone through and its effect on her life. This is what she said. I had been purged and purified and had learned through experience much that I had only superficially believed before. You see, her suffering had tested and deepened and proved the substance of her faith. But let's move on from looking at sin and suffering to look now at at sin and lifestyle. For moving on in verse 2 there, it says of the person who is done with sin, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, orgies, I'm not getting that word, carousing and detestable idolatry. Now, now what I believe Peter is saying here is that, just as we've touched on, the Christian who has suffered, who perhaps has been through many experiences of suffering of greater or lesser severity, can be, should be, the Christian who then understands more clearly what living for God in this fallen world, this sinful world, is all about. The Christian then, who because of their experience of suffering, is truly spiritually focused and clear thinking about life. And who knows then how they should live for God, no matter what the circumstances. That is, not for self, not for sin, but rather by obedience, in faith, seeking in all things to live for God's glory, to fulfill his will and purposes. For, as it says, our days of living ruled by sin, living, that is, with our lives dominated by good appetites that have been perverted and taken to excess because of sin, our days of this are past. Verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. But, but taking this on a little bit, also you see that the Christian who suffered and emerges from this, holding on to God, that Christian has underlined for them in their life, in their heart, a spiritual truth that holds true for all Christians regarding sin and Christian living, Christian lifestyle. And that is that when we become Christians, from that moment, the authority, the dominating power of sin in our lives has been broken. That dominion is over. That is in the past. As we trust in the Jesus who defeated Satan and sin on the cross, so we then, from that point, no longer need to sin. However, although we no longer 
need to sin. Yet, for as long as we live on this earth, there is still within us the remnant of the old fleshly sinful self. And so, although we do not need to sin, we can still choose to sin. But you see, I believe that's what so many Christians in their their superficiality, and I include myself in this, to a greater or lesser degree, that's what they do. That's what we do. That's what I do. They choose to sin. They sin easily. They're careless in their lifestyle and all without thinking about the active ingratitude that is and about the impact that that has on the Son of God who bled and died for us. Suffering, though, can strip away that superficiality. (laughs) Suffering can open our eyes to what it actually really means to live for God in this world. However, you know, even as I say this, I'm sure that there are people here who are thinking and who are brokenhearted because of it. Well, I do know what the basic issues of Christian living are about. I have got underlined within me, in my heart, in my mind, what it means, should mean, to live for God in this world. But still, sin has got a greater grip on my life than I know it should. And it hurts me. That I know that I hurt my Lord. It shames me that I know that by the way I live, sometimes I dishonor him. Now, if that's so, and if that's where you are, then let me just share with you an illustration that I came across in Neil Anderson's book, The, the Way of Escape, that, that I find helpful. That is, think of your polluted, sinful mind. Think of it as a, a pot that's filled to the brim with black coffee. But sitting beside the coffee pot is a huge bowl of crystal clear ice, which represents the Word of God. And your goal is to purify the contents of the the pot by adding ice cubes to it. And every cube that you put in displaces some of the coffee and also dilutes the rest, making it just that little bit purer. But you can only put in maybe two or three cubes a day. So the whole process, when you start off, it seems futile. It seems as if it's making little difference. But you see, over a period of time, the water, the coffee, sorry, the water, yeah, becomes less and less polluted. And the smell and the taste of coffee is greatly diminished. And that process continues to work, provided you don't add more coffee grounds. That is provided you don't add more of that which pollutes. So Paul writes in Colossians 3.15, it says, he says there, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Well, how can we do that? How can we get to that place? where the peace of God really is ruling in our hearts. How do we rid ourselves of the evil thoughts and and the actions that spring from those thoughts that prevent peace? How can we do it? How can we know 
peace in our hearts, peace within, and so peace with one another. Well, the answer is found in the next verse, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Or as it's put in Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. You see, what we're saying here is that they're just trying to stop thinking bad thoughts, just trying to stop doing bad things on its own. That won't work. You won't do it by your willpower. No, rather, just like putting the ice cubes in the coffee pot, so then day by day, piece by piece, what we've got to do is we've got to fill our lives more and more with the crystal clear word of God. We've got to seek to fill our lives more and more with God and with the thoughts of God. And we've then got to seek the power of the Spirit and then seek to live in obedience to that word. Well, let's move on to look finally now at sin and judgment, at the relationship that there is between sin and judgment. Beginning here in verse 4, where it actually carries on talking about pagans. And it says... They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those that are now dead. So that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Now, what this tells us so clearly is that there will be judgment because of sin. There'll be judgment for non-believers, for those who don't trust in Jesus, those who don't know him as Saviour and Lord. Now, here Peter is, is actually talking in the example he uses of very antagonistic, aggressive non-believers. Those who abuse Christians because they, they don't, don't join in with them in their sinful, immoral living. Probably because the Christian's holiness, the difference in the Christian's life, pricks their conscience. But notice that, that Peter says here that God is ready to judge these people. The inference being that, that such is their sin, that God's actually ready to judge them now. He's ready to judge them in this life that they may well suffer here and now repercussions because of this, and that he will certainly judge them in the life to come. But, you know, please don't let this example fool you. It's not just those who are aggressively against Jesus Christ who come under God's judgment. It's not. Not anyone who does not put their trust in Jesus as Saviour and Lord... Anyone who does not accept the salvation that God offers through him, the solution to our sin problem, who does not follow him in this life, anyone in that position comes under the judgment of God. Because as Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way, you see. Not good works, not other religion. 
There is no other way to get right back into a relationship with God. It's only Jesus. As Acts 14, sorry, 4 verse 12 says. It says salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. And and let's just make it clear, the the separation that we're talking about here, that separation from God, that's what judgment is all about, this is an eternity of separation from God. Meaning separation from the order and the beauty and the love that God brings into life. That's what we're talking about by judgment. An eternity of separation from God that the Bible calls hell. And please, let's not hear, call God cruel or unloving or unjust because of this. You see, he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price of the sin that separates us from him. God offers us, each one of us today, life through Jesus Christ. That's the offer. It's here, right now. But if throughout our lifetime we reject that offer or simply ignore that offer, then who's to blame for that? Who is to blame? I tell you, not God. Surely not God. Norman Geisler, he says here, and there's a bit of C.S. Lewis in this quote, he says that all who go to hell do so because of their free choice. God doesn't send them there. They choose it. And God respects their freedom. There are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will then be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And as for believers in judgment, well, verse 6, I believe, tells us two things about believers in judgment. First, that believers will suffer death. That is, they will suffer the physical judgment on sin, as do all men, until Christ returns. But, because of Christ, because of their faith in Christ, they will not be judged by God in regard to the Spirit. They will have to give an account of their life. We all do to God. But those who have a trust in Christ will not be judged by God regarding their salvation in the life to come. That spiritual life is theirs and theirs eternally. Do you see that's what verse 6 is actually saying in regard to believers and judgment? For this is the reason, it says, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That is, Christians who've died. So that they may be judged according to men in regard to the body, that is, physically, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit now and eternally. Well, that's sin and its relationship to suffering and lifestyle and judgment. And as you look at it, you know, this sin's a pretty big problem, isn't it? It's a big thing. Yeah, I tell you, a 
Of course it is. It definitely is. This is the biggest problem, not only in your life today, but in the entire universe. Forget about the economy. Forget about recession or unemployment or illness, death, war, whatever. There is nothing more important in your life than that sin in your heart that separates you from the love of God. But listen again, remember, that sin has been dealt with. Jesus Christ died to pay the price of your sin. He gave his sinless life as that sacrifice for our sin. And you can know all the benefits of that and know them right now. Right now. But only if by faith. Faith in Christ and his death for you. Only if by faith you lay hold of the life God offers you in him. And make your mind up from now on to live for his glory. The choice before you then this morning is clear. It's stark. It's a choice between life overflowing, abundant life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. Or the choice of an empty Christless eternity. That's the choice. What's your choice today going to be? My prayer is that it will be the right choice. Let's come and pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word and that it just opens up to us. Just the problem in our lives and the problem in the world all around us that fundamentally the problem is a sin problem. It's the fact that we have chosen sin rather than to live for you, that we've turned away from you. And that sin raises a barrier that if it's not dealt with, will separate us from you forevermore. But Lord, we thank you that you have dealt with sin. You've dealt with the death that sin brings and you've done it all through Jesus Christ. But today, we have to see that and we have to choose that. We have to choose Jesus and through him make life with you our possession now and forever. Lord, help us to make that right choice today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.